believe God is going to speak to you in unusual ways, so I want you to be attentive to him. I want you to take notes if you have the ability to do so. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, and it said, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess, everybody say confess. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction. Everybody say remember. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, my God, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Uh, Last week, we began a series dealing with the book and story of Nehemiah that will shape our first few months of 2020, and the series is called Rise Up and Build. Everybody say, Rise Up and Build. If you have not had a chance to be with us the past few Sundays, we have decided that our theme for the new year is Whole Church 2020. Everybody say, Whole Church 2020. The concept being, if we're going to accomplish great things for God, it will take, it will require a whole church. Not just a whole church as far as every member. It will require every member, every person putting their hands to the plow. But it will also require a whole church. That means a mature church, a healthy church, a focused church, a complete church. How many want to be whole this year? Now, how many really want to be whole this year? You say, God, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be whole this year. We've chosen the series Rise Up and Build because Nehemiah is all about, pay attention, returning, rebuilding, and restoring. Returning, rebuilding, and restoring. I love this verse in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, just painting the picture for those who have not been here. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, where Nehemiah declares, so we built the wall, watch this phrase, for the people had a mind to work. For the people had a mind to work. Look at somebody around you. Say, neighbor, do you have a mind to work? Nobody answered? You say, I don't know. I mean, I guess. Look at somebody else around you. Say, neighbor, do you have a mind to work? The point is very simple. If you want to, <laughs> amen, brother, amen. <laughs> the point is very simple. If you want to hold church, it will require whole work. You have to put in the time and the effort, right? Rise up and build. Legend has it that during 12 BC, after the abduction or elopement of Queen Helen of Sparta by the Trojan Prince Paris, that the Trojan War began. And it was a conflict between the Greeks and the Trojan forces. And Queen Helen's jilted husband named Menelaus convinced his brother, King Agamemnon, to lead an expedition to retrieve her from Troy. They were joined by Greek heroes named Achilles, Odysseus, Nestor, Ajax, and accompanied by a fleet of more than a thousand ships throughout the Hellenic world. 
They cross the Aegean Sea to Asia Minor to lay siege to Troy and demand Helen's return by Priam, the Trojan king. Now, the siege was punctuated by battles and skirmishes, and maybe you've seen the movie Troy with Brad Pitt, so you already know all of this. But it included the story deaths of the Trojan prince Hector and the nearly invincible Achilles. And it lasted more than 10 years, a 10-year war. Now, the Trojan army was defended by fortified walls that were almost unbeatable in open combat. The war lasted for these 12 years, over a decade, until one day in the morning, the Greek forces retreated from their camp and apparently sailed away. Now, of course, they left for the people, as you can see, of Troy, a peace offering, a peace offering to the gods. It was a large wooden horse outside the gates of Troy. Now, after much debate and unheeded warnings, the Trojans pulled the mysterious gift into the city. And of course, as you know, this is where we get the idea of the Trojan horse. When night fell, the horse opened up and a group of Greek warriors led by Odysseus climbed out and sacked Troy from the inside out. Now, scholars debate whether or not this is a historical conflict or a combination of folk tales inspired by Greek mythology. But regardless of whether or not this story actually happened, as it has been retold, the principle of what ultimately won the war is noticeably true. A city is best destroyed not from the outside, but from the inside. If you want to destroy something, you don't attack it from the outside. You attack it from the inside. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news today, church, but I'm here to tell you this morning that we've all been had. We've all been hoodwinked. We've been led astray, run them up, bamboozled. Because we have been led to believe by our culture that the way we will achieve true change in this year, 2020, and in any new endeavor of life is from the outside in. We've been told that change happens from the outside in. We've been bamboozled, we've been run amok, we've been lied to. And if you don't believe me, ask this question. Why have you chosen the specific resolutions that you have written down for the new year? Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you say, well, I want to improve myself. I want to get better than I was before. Well, who told you you needed to get better? Who told you that you needed to improve? I know some of us would say, honestly, that it was a gut feeling. It was an instinct. I looked at my life and I honestly assessed and I said I could be better in certain areas. But others of us must be honest enough to say that there was something in someone else that gripped us. There was something in the culture that we saw that was appealing. And because it was so appealing, we decided that we needed to change ourselves. Perhaps we saw someone taking luxurious vacations and their testimony of how they achieved their fortune or excess funds was because they spent time budgeting themselves properly. So we decided, well, I want to do what they do, so let me budget myself and get myself together financially. Perhaps we saw someone's body in the summer, how they carried themselves, and they chalked it up to dieting. They chalked it up to working out and exercising. We said, so I need to put together an exercise plan that gets me to where they are because I want to look like that. I want to be able to do what they do. Perhaps we saw a new possession or a car or a house or something that's the fruit of someone else's labor. And we said, you know what? I want that. I want to cross off some items on my bucket list. So let me work harder than I worked in 2019. 
It doesn't even have to be something bad. Perhaps it's someone's spiritual life and you said, I want to read and pray and study more. I want to get to where they are in their anointing and in their gift. Whatever it is, the great lie of our culture, church, is that you can get what you need by looking outside of yourself. The culture tells us the way you achieve is from the outside in. See, what you want and and then the vision of what fuels your motivation from what you see, that's what's going to shape your life. But there's a problem with this church. The problem with this is it places your hope and your motivation on what is outside of you. The problem is it places your mind and your affections and your thoughts and your goals and your dreams outside of you. And there's nothing wrong with motivation. But if what someone else is doing is the only motivation that you have, that's some faulty motivation, church. There's nothing wrong with being inspired. But if the only inspiration comes from what someone else is doing afar off, where the grass looks greener on the other side. Someone once told me the grass looks greenest over the septic tank. Remember that. If that's the only place where you get your motivation, church, there's something wrong because, see, we don't grow from the outside in. The culture tells us that change flows from the outside in, but in the kingdom of God, change always happens from the inside out. In the kingdom of God, you don't change by looking at someone else and then affecting yourself. You change by making sure you're right. You get your house in order first, and then you can look on the outside and get the inspiration that you need. Let me, let me, let me burst a bubble here. I'm sorry to say this. I'm sorry to say this. I know everybody is a pastor and a minister and a prophet and an apostle. Nothing wrong with that if God has truly called it you to be that. But now it's so easy to start a ministry. Now it's so easy to get a following that some of us think that what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to be great in public. We think we're just supposed to be great in public. But can I help you with something? God won't call you to do something great in public if you haven't done anything great in private. That ain't how it works. He don't go from the outside in. It's the inside out. Can I tell you why? Because you can't lead anybody else if you can't lead yourself. How you going to change someone else and you still bound? How you going to set someone else free and you still in chains yourself? You can't change anyone. You can't do anything great. You can't conquer anything else long term. Short term, it may seem like you're achieving, but what's on the inside is going to come out. You can't do it long term if you don't first change yourself. Oh, you, you don't believe me. You see, I'll just bring Moses here. Moses, how are you going to leave the children of Israel? Well, I got to make you so obscure that you're on the backside of a mountain tending sheep. And then I've got to show up while you've been waiting and running for your life because you killed someone in Egypt. Then I've got to show up and tell you what the vision is. And then you're not going to believe me. You're going to say, I don't have enough and, and I can't do it. And I'm not gifted and I'm not qualified. But then I'm going to gift you and I'm going to qualify you. and I'm going to call you. You got to do it in private first. Come here, Joshua. You want to lead the army of Israel? Well, then you have to be Moses' understudy. You have to carry his shield. You have to fight his battles. And then when I call you, you're going to be ready. You're going to be more ready than you think. But first, got to do it in private. Come here, David. You're going to be a shepherd boy. You're going to kill a lion and a bear. 
And you're not going to have Instagram to be able to put it up and say, look what I did. You're not going to be able to have social media to take a picture and say, look what I just did. You're not going to be able to have TikTok to show a boomerang video of you killing and ripping the lion's jaw off. It's not going to work like that. But when Samuel shows up, I'm going to anoint you. And then when Goliath shows up, I'm going to give you the power to kill him. But then still, you got to wait. You got to run. You're anointed. You're qualified. You're called. But still, you got to wait. See, it doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. Come here, Esther. What are you going to do when you're in the court of the king? How are you going to save your people? Oh, it's real. I don't have any gifts. I don't have any special knowledge. No, you have influence and you have access. And so you're going to do something in private that's going to save a whole lot of people in public. They might not know your name like we know your name, but the reality is I've called you to do something. And come here, Jesus. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the son of man. Easily, he could have started his own ministry as a teenager. He was schooling the philosophers at 12 in the synagogue. He was schooling the rabbis. He was asking questions that they couldn't answer. But Jesus, from 12 to 30, the Bible records nothing of what he does. Why? Because he's trying to show us, I can't give you something in public if you haven't proved yourself in private. Are you hearing me, church? Change doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside. God's not going to call you to do anything great in public if you haven't done anything great in private. So what should our focus be, church? Where should we spend most of our attention? Where should we spend most of our energy? On the outer or on the inside? Is God trying to teach us this year that it doesn't matter how it looks to people? It doesn't matter how it looks to your friends. It doesn't matter how it looks to your family. It doesn't matter how it looks to those around you who have been hating on you or those around you who have been cheering you on. It doesn't matter either way. The reality is I'm going to do things for God. I'm not going to do things for you. I'm going to do things for an audience of one. And the audience of one, when he's ready, is going to elevate me in public if I'm faithful in private. Are you hearing me, church? The great lie of the culture is you can change things from the outside in. It doesn't work like that. You have to change things from the inside. Last week, we talked about the posture of Nehemiah. Predictably, this week, we're going to talk about the prayer of Nehemiah. Everybody say prayer. Now, let me parenthetically interject here. Whenever we talk about prayer, people tend to feel guilty. They tense up. They hold their breath because they realize, I should have done more praying. And now I'm going to be exposed to everybody. And I'm going to feel so bad. Because they're going to talk about a prayer life I don't have. Let me help you with something. We do not bring up the topic of prayer to condemn. Prayer is not meant to be a weapon of condemnation. Prayer is an invitation, not a condemnation. So we don't want you to be condemned. We don't want you to feel like you can't do it. We don't want you to feel like I've been neglecting it. No, no, no. If you're convicted, embrace that. But conviction and condemnation are two different things. Shame is a poor motivator, church. That's for free. Shame is a poor motivator. If we're shaming people, that's not going to cause them to change. It is the goodness of God that brings people to repentance. Are you hearing me? Okay, all right, all right. So the point of prayer, the point of talking about it is not to shame you, but to equip you. 
So with that in mind, let me give you a few resources that I have on the front end. Before we get into the text, I want to give you some resources that you can write down, take a picture of, that can drastically help your prayer life because they have drastically helped mine. Uh, Go to the first slide here. First slide is called Kingdom Prayer. It's a book, Touching Heaven to Change Earth by Tony Evans. Anybody familiar with Dr. Tony Evans? Just recently lost his wife as well. And uh, we also pray for his daughter, Priscilla Schreier. She's going into surgery as well for an abnormality on her lung. So the Evans family has been under attack, so keep them in prayer. Um, Generals within the body of Christ. This book will give you a mentality on prayer, a perspective. If you're trying to figure it out, if you're trying to demystify it, Kingdom Prayer is a great book for you to get. Very accessible, very easy for you to read, okay? Next uh, slide. Next slide is something a little bit deeper, but it's something I absolutely love. It's called The Daily Office, Recovering God's Presence Throughout the Day by Peter Scazzaro. Now, The Daily Office is based on three rhythms of prayer. Because sometimes all we do is we pray in an emergency. You can't live off of emergency prayer. You know that, right? It's not going to work. Imagine if you lived off of emergency food only. That's not a diet. That's not building you up. That's not creating the rhythm and the pattern in your heart and in your mind. But the daily office is based on a morning, a midday, and an evening rhythm. Very simple very easy. It'll take you about 15 minutes each time or less. It's phenomenal. It's great. The Daily Office by Peter Scazzaro. Uh, Next slide. The final one is another one that I absolutely love, but it's really more so on the spiritual disciplines. It's called Sacred Rhythms by Ruth Haley Barton. It's all about arranging our lives for spiritual transformation. So if you're trying to figure out not just prayer, but how do I arrange my life so that I can grow spiritually? How do I arrange my life so I can be built up? These are three great resources. Obviously, Sacred Rhythms is phenomenal. Ruth Haley Barton, anything by her is excellent. Now, if you have any more questions, you're trying to find something else, uh, Pastor Burns, Pastor Diane, uh, they can definitely give you more resources as well. I can give you some more resources. But these are three that are just designed to help you, designed to equip you, not to shame you, but to give you the tools you need to change. Amen? You know, it's, it's a shame if the church tells everybody what they're not doing but then doesn't give you any avenue to get better from what you. Right, I'm just making sure. I'm just making sure you're with me. So also I want to bring up this idea. This is the parenthetical way that I'll tie in Matthew chapter 6, which is the model prayer. It's the Acts model of prayer. Go to the next slide. The Acts model of prayer, it stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. If you're like, I don't even know where to start. I don't know what to do. Or maybe you're like, hey, I've done it for years, but it's kind of been haphazard, and I'm trying to get back into it. I'm trying to add some consistency to my routine. Well, if that's the case, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, as you'll see throughout this text, are present. And this is based on Matthew chapter 6, the model prayer, where Jesus says, this is how you pray, after they say, teach us how to pray. Amen? All right, are you with me? Let's get back into the text. Let's run through the text. Are you with me? You really with me? Okay, all right, I'm just making sure. I'm not going to move faster than you. I'm not going to move faster than you. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5, the first realization, the first reality we see about prayer is that prayer positions God in our hearts. Prayer positions God in our hearts. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. 
Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, remember, Nehemiah just heard the news that the ruins of the city are so great that most people, most of his compatriots have left. The gates have been burned down and the walls have been broken down. So what does he do? He responds to brokenness with brokenness, right? We talked about that last week. He responds by allowing himself to be fully broken so that God can put him back together and use him. But then he gets into the prayer. He says, the God of heaven. Everybody say that with me. Say the God of heaven. This is so interesting because this is a unique phrase that is not native to all of the Old Testament. This is a unique phrase because around the time of exile, they were overtaken by the Persians and the Babylonians. And currently, Nehemiah is serving the Persian ruler. And the Persians had their gods. And the Babylonians tried to introduce their gods. And the people around them in neighboring nations who weren't strong enough to take them over and enslave them, they started introducing their gods. And so they started introducing all these gods and goddesses and deities and idols. And Nehemiah wants to make it clear, even in the midst of an exile community, there is only one God. There is only one God, church. I, I want you to hear me because it it's, it's in vogue in our society. I understand religious pluralism, tolerance tells us that what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to honor someone else's faith expression. I completely agree. We should honor someone else's faith expression. That's the law of the land. That's how we run. It's also gracious for us to love our neighbor. But let's not allow the pluralism of society or the tolerance of society to leave any sort of confusion in our hearts. Even though we're going to be kind and gracious and merciful to those outside of the household of faith, that's what we're supposed to do. May we be so resolute enough to think in our minds that there's no confusion about who the real king is. There's no confusion about who the real ruler is. He is the God of heaven. He is the God of all the gods. God, watch this, is holy in comparison to other gods. What does this mean? It means that if you challenge God with another God, you'll find out who's for real. If you challenge God with anybody else, you'll find out who's for real. You remember the prophet Elijah, right? You remember the prophet Elijah? He said, he said, go ahead. Let's see who's real. Let's test it out and see. You do your ritual. I'll do mine. And what did they do? They cried and they slit their, their arms and they, and they wailed and they screamed. And then Elijah was like, well, I guess he's sleeping. I, he can't hear you. You need to speak louder. Yell louder. That's some holy shade right there. That's petty. I love that. And what does Elijah do? He goes up and prays a 60-word prayer. And then the fire of God falls. Why does the fire of God fall? Because Elijah had no doubt who was the real God. You want God to show up in your life this year? You better have no doubt whether or not God is real. You better have no doubt whether or not God exists. And there's too many Christians who check the box, but don't believe in the power. I don't identify with that one. I don't know what you're talking about. So what you're telling me is there was a God who came and walked on water, and I approach him in prayer like he maybe might, could, possibly do it. 
You telling me there's a God who overcame and conquered death and the grave and hell and took the keys of the kingdom. And now I'm like, well, you know, it might work out. I might do it. I might go to God in prayer. You better have no doubt in your mind, your heart, your soul, your spirit, your gut that God is real and nobody else can stand up to him. Nobody else can touch him. Someone say he's the God of God's. He's holy in comparison to everybody else. Now, I know what you're thinking. Of course, that's easy for us to. Amen. Powerful. Because we don't have a lot of other gods that people worship. And most of us, we would never think of ourselves as idol worshipers. I get it. I understand. The problem is you worship someone based upon the attention that you give. It's real easy for us to rah-rah. Okay, God is God over Buddha. Yay. God is God over Muhammad. God is God over Allah. Yay. But the problem is, is God God over your money? Is God God over your technology? Is God God over your free time? See, that's where it gets interesting. See, because we made functional idols of so many different things. And we would never think that we're worshiping him. But the reality is whatever we give attention to is what we worship, whatever we think about, whatever we daydream about, whatever we fixate on. And the people around us and the things on this earth make poor gods. They make brutal dictators and taskmasters. No, God isn't just God over the other gods of different religions and over the other gods of pagan society. God is God over my time, over my money, over my emotions, over my body, over my relationships. Are you hearing me, church? He's God in comparison to that, too. This is what we call adoration. Everybody say adoration. This is what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. He says, our father, everybody say our father, in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, situate yourself within the story of God. This is so important. God isn't just God over your life. He didn't say, pray my father. He said, pray our father. You see, some benefits only come to you if you're on good terms with your siblings. I'm sorry, but I got to say this. You see, some things, you know, if your kids are arguing, when I was growing up, I had two siblings. And the thing about it is, when the kids were arguing, they would just say, nobody gets it. Because I wasn't on good terms with my brother and my sister. And even though I didn't think I started it, and even though I didn't think that they should penalize me based upon what they did, they said, if you not go, if there's discord in the car on the way to church, when we 10 minutes late, if there's discord in the car, if there's discord and arguing in the house, I'm not going to give you the benefits of what a parent or a father or a mother should give. See, some of, some of us have to realize that the reason why God hasn't done for us is because we haven't done for one another. We're on bad terms with our siblings. And then we want to say, God, daddy, help me. Help me out. Do it. Do it for me. And God is like, wait a second. <laughs> How 
How does that work? That's contrary to how things operate. That's contrary to my word. He says, pray our Father who art in heaven. Listen to this. Hallowed be thy name. We have honored and reverenced your name properly. We're not going to call you out of your name. We're not going to use your name flippantly. We're not going to use your name as though it's other names. You tracking with me? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before I get to ask you for something, I need to remind myself that I didn't write the story. Before I get to ask you for something, I need to remind myself that I'm not the lead character in the play. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth, just like it is in heaven. Do you realize how powerful it is to situate yourself as submissive to the narrative and the story of God? So then you don't look at God as though he is inconveniencing you when he asks you to do something. You you ever had one of your kids blow out whenever you told them to take the trash out? (sighs) What do you you think when it rises up in you? When, when you? When you wish you had the extended arms of Mr. Fantastic to grab them by the collar and pull them back. What do you think? This is my house. This is my house. How you going to blow out to me in my house? This is, this is my house. Some of y'all know you did it this morning. It's okay. It's okay. Some of y'all are like, ooh, that look familiar. Why are we treating God like this ain't his house? Why are we treating God like this ain't his story, church? Why are we treating God like he ain't the boss? Go talk to this person. Well, come on, God, I got so much to do. Whose house is this? Go and give to the church. Well, you know, but I just, whose house is this? Let that person go. Well, God, I mean, we've been together for so long. I don't know if I, whose house is this? You need to remind yourself it's his kingdom, not your kingdom. It's his will, not your will. It's his plan, not your plan. I need to move on. I need to move on. The question I want to ask you is very simple. Is running to God your first response or your last resort? Is it your first response or is it if I can't figure it out on my own after about 10 different things, then I'm going to throw a prayer on it. I'm going to sprinkle some anointing oil on it and then God going to bless it. Look at Psalms 18 verse 6. This is what the psalmist says. In my distress, everybody say distress. In my distress, in my panic, where did I run first? I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Do you realize that God is not too busy to hear you? See, sometimes we don't go to him because we think we're inconveniencing him. Sometimes we think he doesn't have the capacity. He's got all these billions of other kids. He's got all these other people. And I'm just praying for something small. But God says, no, I want your small things too. Because I have the capacity to meet the big needs and the small needs. To meet the great needs and the little needs. Are you hearing me? Is running to God your first response or your last resort? This is why Watchman Nee said, the best prayer is not I want but thou art. Somebody need to tweet that. (laughs) You need to tweet that. The best prayer is not, I want, 
but thou art. When you start exalting God to his proper place, you start to realize that the things I need are all going to be encompassed in who he is. So I don't go to God asking for me first. I go to God and say, whatever you have, I already need it. And you're the God who's able to provide it. Amen. All right. Number two, prayer places us back. Everybody say places. Look at this. Verse six. I'm almost done. Let your ear be attentive. Your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, and my father's family have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah was positioning himself properly in the presence of God. He was taking a stance of humility. Everybody say humility. And he was honoring God by putting himself in the proper place. You see, prayer has a way of putting you in your place. Prayer has a way of putting us in the proper perspective. Prayer has a way of giving us a much-needed reckoning and reminding us of who we really are. That's why the second C in the Acts after adoration is confession. Everybody say confession. That's why it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, and forgive us our debts. I love the way the King James originally says it. Forgive us our trespasses, right? As we forgive those who trespass against us. You see, we have to make sure that before we ask God for something, we put ourselves in the proper place. Just because we can come to God's throne boldly doesn't mean we come to God's throne casually. That's different. I come boldly based upon him. I don't come casually based upon what I want. This is what it's like. Can I give you an example? Can I give you an illustration? See, one of the things I'm really thankful for is I have a great relationship with my parents, right? Great relationship with my parents. I know everybody doesn't have that blessing. So I I praise God. I honor Pastor Greg, Pastor Diane Burns. Can we honor them? Because they raised us in the fear of the Lord. I honor them. I love them so much. See, but... I'm grown now, right? But there's some things I still don't do. Can I give you an example? See, I I remember I was recently in Chicago, and um, I I hung out with somebody, and then I I saw the way that this group of people referred to their parents. It was just real casual. And they called their parents by their first name. Now, I just braced myself. I tensed myself up. They not my parents. But I tensed myself up in anticipation that somebody was going to get slapped. Now, these are grown people, right? But, I mean, I, I don't call them by their first name. I mean, I just, I don't do that. You know, I, I don't see that going well. I, I, maybe in 10, 15, 20 years, I might, I, even then, I don't think I'm going to do it. You see, because there was enough honor that was taught to me that says, just because now we're in the same classification of adult. We ain't built the same. Our roles ain't the same. Oh, so you're going to come into our house, visit, not wipe your feet. Put your feet up on the couch. Leave your grand, leave our grandkids over so that you can go out and do what you need to do. Eat all the food in our refrigerator and then call us by our first name? I, I just, I can't imagine that's going to that's go too well. 
See, because just because I have access doesn't mean I have the right to disrespect. So I don't flippantly walk in and disrespect even though he's my father. See, some of us, we've gotten to this place with God to where we feel like we don't have to reverence God as though he ain't for real, for real. See, God is different, okay? God will strike you dead. God keeps everything together by the word of his mouth. God is the one who's making sure that my body is healed. God is the one who's making sure I have enough to pay my bills. And I'm not going to be caught disrespecting God. I'm not going to be caught coming up into his presence, calling him whatever. Listen, I understand it's, it's good to be culturally relevant, and I'm the number one person for that. But Jesus is not my homeboy. I get it. I understand it. Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's not my homeboy. I don't use commoner language to refer to a king. I understand we want to be culturally relevant. I understand we want to be accessible. But somebody need to remind somebody in the culture that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah and he can roar too. Just because I have access doesn't mean I have the right to disrespect. This is why some of us haven't achieved is because we are casually entering into the presence of God as if it ain't a holy place. We still got shoes on. We still acting like it's nothing. We thinking about whatever. We texting. We scrolling through social media. We haven't properly said. And Jesus is sitting there like, hold up, wait a second. You said you needed me. I thought I was the main event. I thought I was the person that you were supposed to worship. Church, we, we got to stop being disrespectful to God. We got to stop being casual with our Savior. He's not our homeboy. He's our Messiah. This is why it's so important for us to pray, because it reminds us who's in charge. Not only that, but prayer reminds us that it is not ourselves. It is not our words. It is not our eloquence that is getting Jesus's attention. Look at this, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, earlier. It says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Keep going down. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need already before you ask him. See, some of us think we've not prayed because other people have prayed better than us. We think God's grading prayers by acceptability. And I don't know about that. When you go and talk to your father and your mother, you are respectful, but you are not unnecessarily verbose. Oh, great mother who hast borne me in thy womb for nineth months. Oh, great father with majestic afro. Oh, great father with wonderful Facebook presence. Wilt thou but consent to allow me to step into thy presence? There's a difference between honor and there's a difference between patronizing. God already knows that. Come on, stop. Stop acting like that. See, because it's not about God when you do that. It's about you. 
God is not concerned with grading our prayers. Listen to this. God doesn't grade prayers by your fluency. He grades prayers by your humility. You can be as flowery as you see fit and feel, or you cannot, and you can be real and respectful and honest with him, and he accepts that. That's why C.H. Spurgeon says this, true prayer is measured by weight, not by length. God is less concerned about how you pray, more concerned about if you believe what you're praying. Just because you say the right words doesn't mean you believe. My Bible says, Romans 10, 9, if you confess and if you just do one, it's not good enough. Because just because you said the right thing, that's an incantation. That's not a prayer. These are not magic words. All this is is making sure that your words and your heart match each other. Are you hearing me, church? Two things. I'm going to skip over this, then we're going to get to the final one because we'll run out of time. Prayer places us in sync. Everybody say in sync. This means that Nehemiah reminds God, reminds God of what he did for Moses, right? But Nehemiah is not reminding God. Really, Nehemiah is reminding himself of how God operates, right? So when you pray, you have to remind yourself that God is good. That's where Thanksgiving comes into place, right? If he did it before, he'll do it again. Okay, last one. Push past that one. Finally, prayer produces power. Everybody say prayer produces power. After we have put him in our proper place, put us in our proper place, put him in his proper place. After we've confessed our sins and shortcomings, after we have thanked him and placed ourselves in sync with the flow of his word and his will, now is a time where we can start to ask God for things. I don't believe that if you're going to God, you should ask him for something below his capability. I believe that if you're going to God, you should respect and honor his time enough to ask him for something great. Why? Because he's great. It's not disrespectful to ask God for something great and mighty. It's actually disrespectful for us to ask God for something less than great and mighty. Because our God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. This is why he says, give us today our daily bread, Matthew 6, 11. Then it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I love this because this is where the power comes in. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Not for a term. Not for a few years, not for as long as I'm alive, forever, church. The power you need has to come from a different source. Do you need power today, church? Who really needs power today, church? Do you need anointing today, church? Do you need the ability to overcome today, church? Do you need to be reminded that you are more than a conqueror today, church? Do you need the might and strength to do what is right today, church? It only comes from one source, outside of yourself. I believe that there are some people in here who have been serving God long enough to know, to believe within their hearts and their minds, with no doubt that God is capable, God is able, God is willing, and God can blow our minds. Do you believe that God can really blow your mind? 
Do you believe that if you align yourself properly that God can do the very thing that you ask and get this even more than you ask? I'll never forget, I was uh, at a restaurant. I was at a restaurant and um, they messed up my order. This tends to happen a lot, right? I was picking up something, they messed up my order. I was upset. I was mad. You know, but I kept it in because, you know, you don't want to make a scene. I don't know. They don't know me. I'm just, I'm not going to get into that, right? But I was complaining. I was like, I mean, come on, guys. Come on. What's going on? And then they had the nerve to give me two bags. I only asked for one bag of, of stuff, right? I, I only asked for one bag. Now you got my order wrong? You give me the order of someone else? So I asked them, I said, what is all this? They said, well, we recognize that we messed up. And we recognize that you've been waiting for a long time. And since you've been waiting for a long time, we're not just going to give you what you ordered. We're not just going to give you what you requested of us that we should have provided. But now we're going to give you more than your order. Now we're going to give you more than what you deserve. Now we're going to give you more than what you paid for. You see, you got to have the expectation as you enter into God's presence that you're not just going to get the things you ask. You're going to get the things you don't even know to ask. You're going to get the things that God hasn't even shown you yet. You're going to get great and mighty. You're going to get better, bigger, brighter, and broader. Do you believe God, church? I said, do you believe that God can bless you, church? Do you believe that he can provide power for you, church? Oh, somebody ought to stand to your feet because you need to know. You need to make it personal. Because somebody came in with something deep in your heart. You came in with something that's a request. You say, God, I need something from you in 2020. Let me tell you, if you do it God's way, you get God's results, church. If you do it God's way, he's going to show up and he's going to show out. If you do it God's way, your prayer will produce power. Lift your hands right now. Lift your hands. Father God, right now in the name of Jesus. Right now, in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus, the one who was and is and is to come, I ask that you would communicate your presence to your people. I ask that you would show up and show out for your people. I ask that you would show up in dark places for your people. I ask that you would turn situations around for your people. I ask that you would step in and do the things that are necessary for your people. God, we recognize we haven't done everything right. We recognize that we don't presume upon your grace, your mercy, your love. We don't presume enough to disrespect you, God. But God, what we do recognize, what we do understand is that you are a good God. I said you are a good God. You are a faithful father. You are a, you are a loyal God. You are the God who will step in even when we've fallen on our worst, even when we've done the worst possible thing, God. Even the one who has fallen seven times, you can lift us up eight times, God. And even though we've fallen down, your grace and your mercy, you said you would separate as far as the east is from the west, that you would throw it into the sea of forgiveness to be remembered no more, God. We recognize that you are the great redeemer, the great reconciler, the great restorer. So if we need to be restored, God, I pray that we would say, God, heal me, give me a clean heart, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. But God, we don't come into your presence asking you for something lower than what you are capable of. There are sons and daughters who have run from you. There are sons, grandsons, and granddaughters who are no longer in the fold. God, would you draw them back? 
the mothers and the grandmothers and the fathers and the grandfathers and the, the godfathers and the godmothers who have prayed and cried for those young people to come back home. God, I pray that you would supernaturally bring them back home. Even those right now who are in harm's way, I pray that you would pray, place an unusual hedge of protection around them, that you would guard their hearts and their minds, that bullets that were meant for them would go around them, would curve around them in odd ways that even though they should have been dead, that they would get out by the skin of their teeth and they look around and say, how did I get out of that situation? God, I pray for those who have broken homes, who need their homes put back together, who have lost, who are grieving. God, I pray that you would recognize, that they would recognize that you are the great mender of hearts, that you are the great reconciler of relationships. Just because it looks like it done, it's done doesn't mean that it's done. Just because it looks like it's over doesn't mean that it's over. God, I pray that you would do a supernatural turnaround. That you would bring families back together like never before. Turn the hearts of the sons back to the fathers. Turn the hearts of the daughters back to the mothers. And God, I pray for those who need a supernatural door open. I said I pray for those who need a supernatural door open. Your word says ask and seek and knock. And God, we have to pray in faith. So we pray in faith for that person who needs a breakthrough tomorrow. Not later on this year, who needs ends to meet right now. God, I pray that you would supernaturally show them that you are a very present help in time of trouble, that you are Jehovah Jireh, that there are stores of resources that we don't even know about, that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Those who need provision, would the need be met even before they get home, God? Those who need healing, would you supernaturally guide the doctors and send your spirit to heal from the inside out, God? And those who just need peace in their mind, those who are so tired, who are so exhausted, who are so fatigued, who are ready to give up, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up on wings as eagles. They will run and not get weary. They will walk and not faint. Whatever you need, it's in the house. Whatever you need, it's in his presence. Whatever you need, he's waiting to give it to you. May we pray in faith. Believing that it produces power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, if you believe God's going to do it, why don't you put your hands together and thank him? Oh, come on. Praise him like it's already done. Praise him like you ain't got to strive for it. If you believe it's already done, I want you to look at three people. Give them a hug and tell them it's already done. The thing I prayed for, it's already done.